Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Work Thrive, a podcast for entrepreneurial women redefining the meaning of work. And I'm your host, Katie Glenn. In each episode, you will hear candid conversations with female founders, movement makers, and thought leaders to help you navigate success on your own terms. So let's get started. Hey, 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 welcome, welcome. We are back with another episode, but first of all, Happy New Year. It is January 2021. 2021. I cannot believe it, but at the same time, I can. I really hope that you're in good spirits this year and, you know, I'm hopeful of the possibilities of this year. Despite the pandemic, I'm really trying to stay hopeful. I think we all are. 2020, as we all know, was a very wild year. So I decided to ease myself into the new year. But without laboring too much, I'm really excited to have today's guest. Today in the guest chair, we have Ruth Yamika Afalavi, founder of Magnify, a global community magazine, and podcast at the intersection of faith and culture. Ruth founded Magnify in 2009, and since then she has grown the magazine and community into an incredible movement. In this episode, Ruth and I take a trip down memory lane, from Magnify being an idea to a side hustle to now her full-time job. We talk all about the journey, the lessons, and We seriously talk about some of the sacrifices Ruth has had to make in the last 11 years building Magnify. Ruth shares her wisdom on all things entrepreneurship, connecting community through content, and building a business and brand from the ground up. I really hope that you enjoy this episode as much as we both did. So first things first, talk to me and tell us a little bit more about your journey with building Magnify. 
yeah, so I started, I was going to say 19 years ago, but I mean, when I was 19, (laughs) almost 12 years ago now. Um, And I think what's always really exciting to me looking back on the journey was I never sat down and I was like, I'm going to start something. It just really came from seeing a need and seeing the gifts that I had. So I brought up in a Christian family, parents are amazing Christians, but they were always very clear that faith had to be a personal choice, that you weren't just a, a Christian because your parents were or because you're culturally that's like the dominant religion and so they really encouraged my brother and I to explore and find faith for ourselves so yeah growing up had a great childhood never felt pressured into faith but always enjoyed being around youth group and church Um, but between 2005 to 2007 I sadly lost three people in my family and that just really shook me because yeah, I'd never, I've I'd had a really great childhood. I'd never experienced like hardship in, in such mm-hmm. a short period of time. Losing people who were also like the life and soul of our family was so devastating and really just rocked everything that I thought about the world, where I saw faith. And two weeks after I lost my uncle, I went to start university. So first mm-hmm. term, kind of just enjoying <laughs> the student lifestyle. But for me, a lot of it was just also pent up anger frustration from everything that happened to my family but in the Christmas holidays of first term I felt like a light just switched on in my head and I think coming home from first term was a great chance to just reflect on my life and what I was doing Um, because I think a lot of us it might not be university but just moving to a new city where people don't know you in a way it is a chance to kind of reinvent yourself because people don't know you from anywhere so even if there were certain values that you had you might not adhere to them it's not like anybody even notices because they can only take you at face value from where they met you at week um but I realized for me that purpose and conviction was a really big thing um it always has been I felt that all that I was doing I didn't feel a sense of purpose in that and as much as I was angry at everything that happened to my family particularly because my, my aunt who died was 33 I had a strong sense that life was very short yeah. and so yeah. not even in a morbid way but just you wanted to make the most of every opportunity and I yeah. didn't feel I was doing that and I also realized that faith didn't mean that everything would always go well because I think that's sometimes what you hear is that you know just pray about stuff and it'll be fine um, mm. and I definitely had like a reality check but still decided that I wanted to have a personal faith myself and so when I came back after the holidays I guess I just had had an awakening and a revelation I felt that Christianity the way it was portrayed to people was very off-putting so it felt very judgmental it felt like it was just a list of rules but actually a lot of people didn't even have the opportunity to explore what Christianity actually meant and they often might feel that it was only for one type of person maybe old in the countryside and like not interested in modern life yeah. um, whereas I'd always seen people who were in different industries different spheres thriving but also overcoming challenges and that's effectively where Magpie was birthed in February 2009 just the vision to give women the opportunity to explore faith in a more relaxed and creative way so yeah that's the kind of short story of how my book I started in 2009. Wow that's incredible I think yeah that's amazing I think being able to translate those challenges into and turn that into something that can not only allow you to be creative but something that has deepened your faith you know going from that that space or that that place of questioning everything to then pouring yourself into that. I think that's incredible. I think that's amazing. One of the things that I I enjoyed about what you said, and I think I want us to dig deeper a little bit, that's two things. 
you mentioned knowing your gifts from very early on and then translating that into purpose. How did you recognize those gifts and those strengths and knowing what you're good at? Because so many people may have an idea of, okay, I think I might be good at this, or this might be a good space for me to turn to, or this might be a good business idea or a good career opportunity. But how did you know what those gifts were and how did you cultivate them? So anyone who knows me within 10 minutes, yeah, we're at the eight minute mark. I will always mention my parents and I have to credit them with so much. So firstly, I think just from a young age with my brother and I, they always encouraged a spirit of curiosity. So whether it was, I want to play the piano or like when I was really good at tennis, they then took me to Florida to go to tennis camp, but they would always, whatever thing me and my brother wanted to try, they would encourage us in that, but also make it very clear how much hard work goes into Mm -hmm. this. If you be serious and they would always say to us like whatever you do do it to the best of your ability so I think I was always acutely aware of like it's great to have gifts but more than having a gift even if it's natural or god-given more important is actually developing and harnessing your gifts and also sometimes a hard lesson so with tennis for instance I was put in coaching I loved it I was quite a good standard but when you went to Florida it was literally like children who were becoming like Serena Williams. So my parents basically sent me there to see if you want to take this seriously, this is the level of playing tennis seven hours a day, getting up at 6.30 to run on the beach is like your morning job. Do you want to do it at that level? The answer was no. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not that committed, fortunately. So yeah, I think the first thing is that my parents always encouraged us to try things, but they also encouraged us that you had to apply yourself. But I think the gift of communication always was there. So I remember even when I was younger in youth group, I had decided that I was going to do like a newsletter for like the other youth. And so like on Saturday nights, my dad would take me to the news agent to like photocopy an A3. It was called Connected. I remember it. And wow. I was <laughs> this time. So looking back, I feel that I've always had that gift of communication. But I think also what I always say to people is look at where you can serve. And often that's where your gift and your passion will align. Because I think sometimes in today's world, there's so much of a focus on like, everyone should be an entrepreneur or everyone has to start something. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Magnify, it was never to start something. It was that I would love to serve women and give them the opportunity to explore something that might be incredible and impact their lives. And so I just kind of put my hands to the plow and in that I realized I had a creative gift and a gift of editing. But the starting point wasn't, I want my gifts to shine. It was actually, how can I be of service to people? And I think even when I speak to like my mentors who are, you know, done incredible things in their careers, they're not at the position they are because they started off being like, I want to be the top or the CEO or the head honcho. It was just that every opportunity mm-hmm. they were given, they just applied themselves and doors continued to open. Yeah, you said so many things there. So many things. I completely hear that. And I say all the time when I speak to, uh, especially like young people, because we're definitely in that generation where everyone thinks that they should be an entrepreneur and everyone thinks that they need to have a side hustle. They need to start this and do that. And it really is finding your area of genius and figuring out where those gifts are and see how you can actually give back to the world. And like you said, that's kind of how you climb towards that sense of purpose and that, and those passions, because it's so easy to get caught up in the, well, everyone says that we should be an entrepreneur. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and find the next big idea. 
And then you realize actually to execute on this next big idea, you really need to enjoy it. You really, really need to enjoy what you're doing. And you really need to find some sense of purpose to be able to execute it at the level that you want to execute it at. You've been the head of Magnify. You've been the founder of Magnify for 11 years now. So you said 2009, so 11 years now. So you've got a decade in the game. How have you navigated the challenges that come with being in business for that long? Because, you know, they say most businesses don't make it to one. You've made it to 11. How have you navigated those challenges? And what have some of those challenges been? I think the first thing is I've just always been very clear on what this is about. It's not about me. It's not about building a brand. It is about impacting women around the world. And so at times when it's got difficult, at times when we've had to pivot, we have a very, very clear goal. You know, when we sit in team meetings, yes, we might have KPIs on different things, but our key determining factor is how many women's lives can we impact. When we look at Instagram metrics, we always say with one follower, that doesn't represent a random number. It represents a woman that we have the privilege of serving and impacting and empowering her to impact all the women in her network, whether it's at her workplace or her family or a community or wherever. So I think, yeah, just keeping the vision in mind, it's a vision that I, I feel we're at like 0.01% of, of reaching. And so when you are so far away from where you want it to go in terms of impact, that keeps you going. And I think, yeah, just having incredible parents and mentors around because I've always been like this ever since I was like 12. I remember my friends would always laugh. If I'd ever go to their houses, I'd always want to like sit down with their parents and like ask them questions about life and work. And they're like, why are you talking to my dad? He's so boring. Or why are you talking to my mom? <laughs> but I think for me, I, I don't know what it was, but from a young age, realized that seeking wisdom and advice from people who've actually done it before is so so important because mm. I think as a what I do like about things like social media and just the um attitude of our generation is very much like we can do it we don't need to wait 30 years we can just do it now but I think sometimes in that we can miss the benefit of just learning from people who have done yeah. it before and it's the same way like if you have a cousin who's 10, it doesn't mean that we have to be a genius, but by being 10, 15, 20 years older than them, there's just more stuff that we know. Yeah. So yeah, I'm always just studying people in leadership who lead nonprofits, who lead charities, who lead businesses. And just, yeah, even if it's coffees or just from a distance watching interviews about how they've managed things, how they've led, how they've learned to be self-aware, how they've employed people who had strengths that were different to them yeah I just I just think that being in a posture of learning means that no matter what challenges you face you will be able to overcome them a lot better in terms of challenges I mean they're by the hour (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I think for me one of the biggest things was that I didn't set off to be a leader because Mm -hmm. I was 19 years old that wasn't I thought I was going to go and work in fashion and I was really happy at like that potential route of career so the fact that when you're young you are going to make mistakes and you are not going to know things just by virtue of only starting but then at the same time you're in a position of leadership I think the second thing is just learning that my identity isn't in Magnify because at this point I've been doing Magnify for a third of my life my entire 20s was spent building Magnify a huge amount of sacrifice has gone into that so like with anything if you spend so much time doing things or 
often when I meet people, they're like, oh, you're the magazine lady. It's like, no, I, I'm Ruth. I'm, I'm not the magazine lady. Yeah. I think when you, for any founder, it's really important that no matter how passionate you are about the vision that you've been given or entrusted to lead, that you don't let it define who you are because you know if you get negative feedback or if things don't go as well as you want them to if so much Mm -hmm. of your identity is in being that person or being the leader of xyz I think that that can be really damaging for you mentally yeah I 100% agree it's that understanding that it's what I do it's not who I am how have you because like you said your entire 20s have been devoted to doing this work and you know your 20s are for a lot of people are about discovering who you are and all of that how have you managed to stay committed to this goal but also finding the balance to say you know this is a part of me but it's not who I am this is a part of what I'm here to do but this is not the, the entirety of my identity I think for me it's like my family and my loved ones so I'm very I guess what I find interesting in our generation sometimes is when people's only friends are the people that are in their industry or that they've mm. met since come um, X, Y, and Z. Because I think it's hard to then distinguish your identity from what you do if everyone you hang around with only knows you in that capacity. Whereas mm. like my best friends and my family, obviously they're happy for me and they're very supportive. But when I meet up with them, they don't talk about Magnify. And that's really refreshing. So for me, I've also learned like boundaries. So when Magnify started, initially a lot of times you'd get coffee requests and it's there's no particular request. It's not to talk about mm. being a leader. Like, oh, I follow you on Instagram. I'd love to meet for coffee. And I learned for me that's actually a really unhealthy space to be in because, like, with other people who don't need stuff, they don't just meet up for coffee with people that they don't know for no apparent reason. And therefore, the relationship, you can't even build like natural friendships if you start things on that way because they're already unequally weighted in terms of people only want to get to know you because of what you're doing. And therefore, when you have character flaws when you make mistakes like we all do that's not a kind of healthy foundation to build a friendship on so I think for me what's helped me is just really staying close to friends and loved ones who I know love me for me they their love for me is not depend their love or interest in me has nothing to do with magnify because yeah I just think that if you only surround yourself with people who know you for what you do it's then even harder to separate those two things Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you mentioned, obviously, is that that transactional feel that comes with, you know, somebody sees what you're doing and it's like, oh, can I meet up for coffee? And I find that a lot of people do that, especially when seeking mentorship. It's they see what you're doing and, you know, they want to be able to do that, but not quite sure how to approach it. And you mentioned, you know, mentorship, you mentioned learning and being a student of learning. And you know, for me, I've always been that kind of person who's committed to learning. And so I find mentorship in obviously having those, those actual relationships, but also opening myself up to learning as much as I can from everyone that I meet, uh, whether that's through a book or through a podcast or whatever. But I've found that, you know, the older I've gotten and the more that I've climbed in my career, that I do find those transactional relationships and those messages coming across how would you suggest that someone who wants to be mentored position themselves for mentorship so I think for me a lot of my mentors it's come through okay so I'll give you one example one of my mentors now they he and his wife have mentored me and my husband actually now for like the last eight years 
well, my husband since we started dating, but I initially messaged my mentor and asked, like, I really admired what you've done in business. And I wondered if I could possibly send you a few questions via email just to kind of get your thoughts and get your wisdom. So I think that's a good way because you're not putting pressure on someone who's super busy to like massively go out of their way. And normally people are always so kind and gracious that they're actually like, oh, let's just pick up the phone for half an hour. Like Mm. time it's going to take them to respond to an email, a half an hour conversation would be easier. And then often you found that like a natural rapport has built up and then maybe it's like you then go for lunch with them and then over a, a few years it just develops rather than I can imagine if I don't know them, if I message be like, yeah. can you be my lifelong mentor? It's a bit like bit of a cold call, uh, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think like the same way with anything that it's to do with relationship and it's to do with chemistry. There might be people who in our minds, we might think that that might be the best mentor for us. And then we actually meet them and we don't have a vibe. We don't click in any way. And there are actually some people who've really surprised me that have become incredible mentors, mentored me for the last 10 years, who I would have never expected. And I think it's important to not also think of mentorship as just to do with our career or just to do Mm. our work or our business or whatever. Because I think there are, I found that so many of my mentors, either they've actually crossed over into people who mentor me just in general, or also having mentors who just mentor you in life. Because I think one of the dangers as well is sometimes we put so much pressure on our work or our vision to be thriving, but actually we're all over the place and therefore we can't actually lead and like lead in a whole way that's a blessing to other people as well as ourselves. So yeah, that's probably what I would say about mentorship. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I love that you said that it's important that we have mentors that aren't just, you know, career driven. I think our generation is completely just, we have in many ways exhausted ourselves when it comes to our career and business, because we have, you know, we live in a society that makes it so much of our identity is about the work that we do, not necessarily who we are as people. And I was speaking to someone earlier this week talking about how for me, taking that step back and understanding who I am has actually meant that my career decisions are so much better because my identity is a lot more secure. For you then, I want to understand what is your definition of purpose and identity and how have you managed to, I guess, build together this, these two things that a lot of people think are quite contradictory, you know, faith and feminism, the traditional Christianity would have gone, what is that? So how have you in your identity and in your definition of purpose persevered to bridge the gap between these two, what people say, very different things? So I guess in terms of purpose, for me, it's where the gifts that you've been given, you use them to meet a need that you see in the world. And it doesn't have to, I think, again, sometimes we confuse purpose with like, we all have to have this like global purpose that everybody knows about. But actually some of the most amazing people I've met are, you know, stay at home mums and their purpose might be to, Mm. you know, into those kids and do such an amazing job that those kids have the confidence to go out and do all the different things that they're called to do in life. So I think it's important to not restrict purpose to being something that's so visibly impactful to thousands and millions of people. In terms of my purpose and identity, I think I just always, again, I think a lot of it comes from my parents, even as a child, was very 
confident in being myself. Mm. I think for me, the idea of following a crowd makes me nauseous. I just can't think of any anything yeah. worse. Nothing um, worse. <laughs> I think, yeah, for me, that hasn't been something that I've necessarily struggled with wanting to be myself or standing out. So for instance, at school, by the time I left school, I was the only black girl in my year. I then went to Durham. There's hardly any black people there. Mm. In a lot of circles, I'm one of the youngest leaders or the only women or the only young black woman. So I think in terms of my identity, it's so important to be secure in who you are and also to not let the world define for you who you should be. Because, yeah, that's just no way to live. You'll just be completely rocky all the time. And then in terms of faith, feminism and fashion, it's weird because obviously when the vision started, the three Fs weren't part of the vision. Mm -hmm. But one day I was on the way to Sainsbury's and I'd been thinking how is it so we're passionate about celebrating and empowering women we're also passionate about expressing things creatively so the fashion element because we started off doing a lot of shoots that would play a huge role and then the faith was obviously the foundation and so it's weird I've just never seen a conflict even though most people do because for each thing I think what scares people puts people off about those words individually is people are often used to seeing like the most extreme versions of each thing so therefore when you have a concoction of all three it's just like oh my gosh what (laughs) what is going on whereas for us and particularly what we started to do within like the magazine or on social media recently is really define from our perspective what we're talking about because I think words in today's world mean very very different things to different people you know so for some people with feminism for us we focus more on celebrating and empowering women whereas obviously there are some feminists who their main mandate is on destroying the patriarchy and so for a lot of women that we interact with I know that they are not necessarily on board with like supporting that which is is no negative to anyone else I think it's important for us as an organisation when you use words that people might have had negative experiences with. We are very clear in defining what that means to us and the way that we use that. Wow, I think, yeah. I think the thing about when you bridge and you put those words together, it creates that unified approach. Whereas, like you said before, a lot of times people think about those words individually and they do go to the extreme. I mean, from my experience, a lot of the times we, when you are faith-based and you have a level of faith and you understand your gift, people always think that you need to serve in the church or you need to do it in a particular way. And what I love about Magnify is that you bridge the gap between so many different things and you've created this incredible community of women who can not only be inspired to, you know, step into their femininity, but also women who can be empowered and educated on how to create a life for themselves that that they love and that is also purposeful. How have you built such an incredible community on the back of that, but also building a team that supports that because I know that the community is probably and likely an extension of the incredible team that you have. So I think the first thing again is just being really clear on the vision. So 
the vision is to impact women around the world and share how faith can enrich their lives. And I think for any organisation, even if, say, you're a hair care brand or whatever, if you're trying to build a team or build a community, people need to understand what you stand for and what you're actually trying to do. So for us, particularly in the early days, the team, a lot of them were friends, a lot of them were just women that I would meet who they firstly had been impacted by the vision but also wanted to share that with their friends. I think in terms of building community, one of the biggest things I've learned is being consistent. So, you know, this year online, we've probably doubled our growth, but a lot of it has been down to being consistent, whereas before, and then we disappear for 10 months. And it's the same way if you're trying to build a relationship with a friend, if they're only here so often, yeah, you're not going to say I'm not going to be friends with you, but you're probably going to think this isn't the most reliable friend to massively invest in. So I think for us with our community, they've seen that we massively want to invest in them. and We're committed to them and we're committed to serving them in a very consistent fashion. And that in itself has we've seen them reciprocate and we're so blessed by like the stories that we hear by the way that our community now they are essentially the ambassadors of the magnify vision they share it with their friends they buy copies for their colleagues and so i think yeah that's been a really beautiful thing to watch is essentially although we're called magnify and our social media handles are called magnify collective we always say that actually what we're trying to build is a collective of women at the intersection of faith and culture and yeah, it's just a real a privilege to be a part of that and to serve these women. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that because like you said, using that example of uh, the friendship, because it is a relationship, like the relationship you have with your community, you are trying to build trust and you are trying to build a reputation with them that says, you know what, I'm here, I see you, I understand you, and I'm here to serve you. And I think a lot of the times when we think about you know, there's a lot of focus on getting the followers, getting the likes, getting the engagement and not really thinking about that act of service, that really we are bargaining for people's attention and we're bargaining for people's time. And we should treat that with respect in the same way that we'd want someone to treat us with respect as well. Definitely. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to go back to is the very early days of Magnify. Let's talk about the practicalities of how you turned Magnify from an idea into this 11-year journey. Where did you start? So yeah, as I said, the starting point was that it wasn't supposed to be an 11-year journey. I wanted to run one event with friends in Durham and we invited, I got a group of girls from different churches, different friendship groups, and basically said I'd love to do an event that would give women the opportunity to explore faith in a relaxed way, have it in a nice hotel and yeah, have it in a nice hotel so women felt special. They felt that we care enough about you hearing this message that we want to invest in that. So that was amazing to like start off. That was February 6, 2009. Then from there, a lot of women had heard about it in London. I was at Durham at the time. That was where we did the first event. So did one in London and had 200 plus women attend. And why that was amazing, because I think sometimes when you do things, you you shouldn't become so fixated on forcing it to become something or forcing it to become something specific. So from so many women coming from across the country, many who'd never heard the Christian message at all before, they had so many questions. And we realised that actually events are very, very expensive to run. And they don't necessarily have a follow through because 
say a woman might come from Manchester, but we're not based in Manchester. And we had, as students, no capacity to set up base in Manchester. Yeah. Actually, how would you continue to serve this woman if you were only doing events? And from then, that was where we had the blog. And then essentially, we were going to put together a pamphlet for, of questions that people had had from the conference. And that developed into like the first 80-page magazine, which then became the magazine which is obviously our flagship product so I think for me each step of the way not to sound so blasé but really it was because we didn't we weren't so fixated on yeah having an idea and obviously the team at that time was full of friends who were students who'd be super excited for two weeks and then be like oh I've actually got loads yeah of momentum <laughs> <laughs> okay well I thought you're gonna be here for life but thank you for the fortnight that you gave and so yeah I think for me perseverance was a big thing I then obviously graduated and went to work for L'Oreal and then for Burberry so was running Magnify on the side but I think there came a point where I realized speaking to one of my mentors that either with if you go into an industry as intense as fashion either you commit to that properly or you have to go and do your own thing you can't kind of be using every Saturday and Sunday to do magpie for 15 hours because you just get to work on Monday incredibly tired. So I think for me, it was that, yeah, I was just always persevering with the vision, always prepared to make sacrifices. So after Burberry, I took a year off unpaid. When I say unpaid, I literally mean zero pounds. Lived at home. At that time, I remember friends, by this time, friends were already like two or three years. Most of my friends worked in the corporate world. So they were always like going on holiday, going to nice mm. dinners. For me, even going to Nando's was like a complete treat, which was not something that I did regularly but I think I just had a resolute focus as to this is what I was building so did that for a year but then it became completely financially not viable to be doing that and obviously at the beginning a lot of like my salary I would put into magnify or whatever so then I took was offered like a freelance role part-time to produce publications for another organization and that was amazing because one I was getting to develop my gifts but in a kind of bigger setting and two being paid three days a week still gave me the flexibility to be able to do magnify so I did that for two different organizations and then yeah February sorry April 2018 went full-time on magnify and I think just the encouragement I always give is that being a leader of a non-profit or a charity or if it's a business that you run you should only go into it if you feel a sense of purpose and calling because, you know, it it seems a lot more glamorous and exciting. There are some days when I get to the end of the working day and I see my to-do list for tomorrow or the next week. It's not like in a regular job where, oh, at night I'll just stroll into work and do my job. And at 5.30 when I finished, even if Mm. I'm not finished, I'll get to go home. And you're not going to be penalized for that. But when you're the founder, you're thinking about, how are we going to make things work? Like in the pandemic, it was very, very quickly, we had to shift strategy. It's the huge honour and it's, you know, it's the honour of my life to lead Magnify, but it hasn't been, yeah, I think we just over-glamorised founders in the way that I've also seen with so many of my mentors. They've made huge impacts by actually staying in companies and like impacting the company culture, creating, Mm. like one of my mentors, she overseas she's like the head of her global division and she always says that every day she gets to impact a million people because she sits at she's the head of people and culture for a huge corporation and she said 
all of those 250,000 people around the world who she is responsible for, she's not just responsible for them, but their families. So like, if you go home and you're in an awful mood, that impacts your brother, your sister, your family, whoever, but actually you can be involved in, as an employee in shaping a culture that also has huge impact. So as much as I know that Magpie has been part of my story and it's incredible, I always do encourage people that don't see someone else's purpose and then feel the pressure of like, gosh, I've now got to start something so I can have a purpose. You can have purpose wherever you are. Yeah, 100%. And the thing that that gets us a a lot, and I, I think for me, I've never really struggled with this because I've always had that clear sense of, you know, I know why I'm here, but I know that a lot of people really struggle with looking, you know, looking to the left and looking to the right and having those, that comparison where that person is operating in their purpose and feeling like, you know, they're not quite sure what theirs is and how to navigate it and feeling quite behind. But one of the things that I appreciate about what you said was you didn't go full time with Magnify until 2018 and you had been working on it since 2009. So that's nine years of working part-time on it and working a full-time job and having uh, and having that the level of impact that you're having in these organizations how did you manage that side hustle with and I can imagine that was probably not didn't manage it as great as, as as much as we think because I hear it all the time when when we have side hustles and we have these the this level of workload that we need to do in our corporate careers. How did you manage those? How did you do it? How? I think the first thing is, I think it's important whenever anyone has a side hustle is to decide what you want it to be, because it's actually not a bad thing. If you say you're into singing, it doesn't mean that you have to become a singer. It might be that you do singing on the weekend and it's a great hobby that you have. You might even teach some people singing. You don't need to open the UK's largest singing academy. You can teach three people and it be a passion that you really enjoy. But if you want to make it into something that's long lasting, that you can have full time, I think that was partly helpful because it informed my decisions. The times when I felt that I became weary or lacked focus was when I would suddenly meet up for dinner with a friend who's in the corporate world earning six figures. And then I'd come home and start applying for jobs at Accenture. And it's like, well, I'm not sure that that's <laughs> what I want to do. Yeah. So I think for me, the first thing is deciding what do you want this to become? And then secondly, just the, the reality of it, as you said, sacrifices have to be made, whether it's financially. So I'm very thankful that at that time, Instagram wasn't such a big thing because all of us, you know, we're human. If you Mm -hmm. only go to Nando's and you'll see your friends go to Santorini, Nando's is not that fun after, after a while. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah, I think that it, it was a blessing the age that I was and where social media was, was that the sacrifices that I had to make at that time, you didn't really see what anybody else was doing. So for all I know, people might've been having great holidays, but it wasn't really broadcast. So you didn't just got on with what you were doing. I think as well, in terms of sacrifices of friends, I was very clear from the beginning that sadly you would lose some friendships because I just did not have the capacity to be going to everybody's birthday, everybody's lunch, people Mm. that you went to school with, that you went to university with. And I think whenever I speak to other mentors who are leaders of big organizations, they say that 
that's probably something that people don't talk about as much, but it is just a reality that if you're spending every weekend and every evening doing something, other things have to give. That's just how yeah. life works. You can't do everything all at once. So yeah, it was incredibly I wouldn't even say challenging. I found it always so exciting because the vision has always motivated me. But I can't lie and say that, yeah, there are things that I've had to sacrifice. Even now, when I look at friends who are buying like their second or third property, that was because in their 20s, they had great jobs financially where they could stack up and pay for stuff. So I think it's just important to know what you've been called to do so that you don't start feeling behind, which I think, is really yet yeah, detrimental because you're mm. actually missing the huge opportunities that you have. And yeah, when I read documentaries or so watch documentaries or read books, autobiographies or biographies on people who are really successful, so many of those people, it might have been that their whole twenties they sacrificed and it wasn't until they were in their mid to late forties that anything started to pay off. So yeah, I think I always try to read stories of people who've gone before me because it just makes you see that when you were impatient like I started an idea in January and I want to leave my job in December yeah. and actually that's very rarely how it happens hmm. the thing about it is that you worked for nine years before you could go full-time on that how did you outside of you know understanding the vision how did you practically deal with the moments of frustration that could would have come when you were going into year six or year seven, year eight, and not feeling like, okay, I can go full time on this? Um, I don't actually know if I ever did feel the frustration of like, I want to do this now, because I was just always acutely aware that, you know, when you run an organization full time, do you really want to be dealing with HMRC, which you don't have to do if you have another job? Do you want to be arranging the cleaner for the office or actually some months you might have to clean the office yourself. Do you want to be ordering furniture for my care? Do you mm. want to be opening the post every day? So I think <laughs> for me, I was always acutely aware that going full time is not just like, oh, you're full time, so you just get to do everything that you want to yeah. do. Like I think when people see that you're an editor or a CEO, they think you're just doing interviews all day or you're just on shoots. By the time I get to shoots, I'm normally so tired because there's literally 150 things to do. And actually a shoot day takes up a lot of time when there's loads of pressing priorities to do. Mm. So I think for me, I would never say I got frustrated because I was always very clear on it would be a different season and a different set of challenges going full yeah. time. Yeah, and it's and understanding. It's their, their security in terms of if you work for another company, even now with COVID, there were things that protections that companies that are larger, you know, if you work for a company that has 3000 employees, there's a way that they operate where you're not going to feel like I'm going into work on Monday and by Friday, I might not have my job. But also you don't think about that because that's for your manager to think or their manager or their manager. So yeah, I think for me, I've always just tried to enjoy each season because I've always appreciated even for instance, so when you're smaller, I think a lot of people get frustrated that, oh, maybe they started a podcast or they started a website or a blog mm. and it's not great. I always say, let us go to 
any platform that we admire let's go to their instagram and read the comments and read how much negativity and read people complaining about this and why did you do that and you did this and we're cancelling you today when you're small there's a benefit to the fact that you can make mistakes in a way that aren't then massively catastrophic so i think for me i try to always appreciate and learn the most in whichever season because yes there will always be new challenges for seasons ahead Absolutely. And I think that comes with understanding that entrepreneurship isn't this glamorized thing that we see all the time because we know we go on social media and we see the laptop lifestyle. We see, you know, the, all these people having these very glamorized version of entrepreneurship. But like you said, it's understanding that there are some benefits that come with having a career that is, you know, establish having a job that is quite secure because when you are the founder you have these responsibilities that no one else have to really think about because it's yours and you have to own that definitely what would you say is the number one thing that is glamorized when it comes to entrepreneurship like the ultimate thing for you that you see that if you could tell a a beginner entrepreneur or somebody who's thinking about stepping into entrepreneurship like learn this very quickly I think the first thing is actually assessing why you want to be an entrepreneur. Like, is there a genuine need that you see or you just want to be in charge and not answer to anybody else? Because I mm. actually, that's just not good. It's not good. It's far no. harder. That's just not a valid reason. And I think with a lot of things, it could be, why don't you join another organization that has already started that's doing that thing? Why specifically? Is it that you're reaching a different niche or you have a particular experience that means you want to do it in a different way. But I think we glamorize being your own boss. And what I think is why I love speaking to the founders who are really honest. So yesterday, one of the guys we interviewed in the latest edition is Mark McIver, who's Mm -hmm. the behind Cider Cuts, incredible man. So he was saying that when COVID hit, before the government even announced that there was going to be any support, he paid all of his staff out of their pocket, out of his own pocket, so that mm. he, they would not miss any payments, not, not be able to put food on the table for their families. That's not what you see. What you see is people thinking, oh, somebody's done a press feature on me. But do you see, yeah, you're the person that also gets the flack. You're the person that has to make hard decisions. You're yeah. the person that gets yeah often a lot of insults and has to smile and carry on do you Mm. that or do you because being in charge for me that literally you don't even notice that you're in charge given how how much responsibility you have um so yeah that's the one thing I would say is do you really feel that I'm not even saying that the sphere can't be your purpose but do you need to start it do you need to be in charge or is there something that's already happening that you could use your gifts and align with like if I look at a company like Rock Nation with Jay-Z there are loads of people who work for Rock Nation who are doing incredibly well probably living lives that they couldn't have dreamed of and they are doing way better than if they said oh I've got to be the head honcho myself so I'm going to go do myself or you can brand with something that's already big that's working or even then a lot of them have been with Jay-Z for 20 30 years they probably wouldn't have known but you aligned your gifts to a vision or to a lead another leader um, and actually they're probably a lot of those people they're leading huge global divisions on their own it, they're just not necessarily the Jay-Z but I think that yeah. that's a lot of the issue is that we all want to be that person and forget 
like if Rock Nation is in the news, it's a bad thing. They're not going to quote the head of A and R. They're gonna the backlash is going to go to Jay Z. Yeah, person in A and R still gets to reap all the benefits from being part of Rock Nation. They just don't have all that flack to deal with as well. So yeah, that's probably what I would say to anyone is just understand your purpose and be confident and don't ever let anyone make you feel that not being a founder is any less valid than playing another part. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said earlier, that it's about purpose in itself is about service. And it doesn't have to be, you know, that you are building a business. It could be that you're helping serve a business and you're helping to serve someone else's vision because ultimately that's aligned with your vision. If it already exists, there's no need to, you know, recreate it. If there is a need here and there is an opportunity to serve that need and use your gifts to serve that need, then that's absolutely fine also. But I think that pressure that we put on people to start a business may not always be, you know, what is best for their personalities and what is best for their career dreams ultimately. And like people do say, well, they don't want to be anyone's boss. They don't want anyone to be their boss. And I always say this whenever I hear it, like I'd sometimes I'd prefer to have one boss than have like all these customers and clients who are your bosses. And if you have investors, you have a million and one people to answer to versus just having one manager. So this, that's also something for people to consider as well. So now we're going to go into the fast five round where I'm going to ask you five questions and you just give me the first answer that comes to mind. Is that all right? Okay. So tell me about a software resource or app that's helped with your business or work that you'd recommend. Slack. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Bye to emails. (laughs) Tell me about a personal habit that's helped you in life and work. So I've been reading this book, book, Deep Work, which I'm obsessed with, um, and actually setting aside time to do like thinking work. Because I think, again, when you're so small in a startup, whether it's just you, it's easy just to be do, do, doing. Obviously, you do Mm. need to do the doing as well. But actually giving yourself time to like think strategically and think more big picture. I found this book really useful. Yeah, that's Deep Work, Cal Newport, isn't it? Yeah, I really love that book. A book, podcast, or event that's helped you significantly the past year. You can't say Cal Newport again. (laughs) So a podcast, I mean, it's more of a show I I would listen to every day with The Breakfast Club. Um, And the reason being that um, Charlemagne, I just think, is such a fantastic interviewer because I think what I've learned is often with interviews, you have the standard questions. And because we do so many interviews, it's often hard to like be so niche. Whereas he'll always say that he asks the questions that the listeners want to know, not the questions Mm. the interview want the interview to be about. So obviously a lot of times come on his show they've got a book to promote or a new film that's obviously all they want to talk about whereas he'll actually ask the questions that he knows listeners want that everyone else wants to ask yeah and that's why I think like their growth has been phenomenal because it's just not a predictable radio show Mm -hmm. yeah I do I love I I do I do really enjoy the breakfast club one lesson you have learned the past year that's helped with your professional and personal development Okay, one lesson I've learned, I've always, I think you just get refreshed, but the greatest joy as a leader is seeing your team thrive and seeing people thrive in their individual gifts. Because yeah, people always say, but any organization, 
it works or it doesn't work based on people. If you have the right people, you flourish. If you have the wrong people, the house is on fire. Mm. Actually, when you see people in your team, especially when they've joined and maybe like a year on, two months on, you see them just really like kicking butt in their work. That's just a huge privilege to watch. Amazing. And what's a word of advice you would share with women redefining their own meaning of work? Don't let anyone pressure you to embrace their definition of success. Yeah, 100%. And if our listeners want to connect with you, where can they find you on the socials? So on Instagram, I'm Ruth Y. Afalabi and Magfi is Magfi Collective. And yeah, our website is magfycollective.com. Thanks for listening to Work Thrive, the podcast. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts as it allows other entrepreneurial women like yourselves to find the show. Speak soon.